You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 51, The Sword of Brumaire. Thanks for joining me. Well, it's taken us two years to get here. The combined scripts for the first 50 episodes of The Age of Napoleon are more than twice as long as Moby Dick. But the moment has finally arrived. In this episode, we will see Napoleon Bonaparte ascend to political power in France. So, without further ado, let's dive in. Napoleon left Egypt believing destiny had called him to act as France's savior at the country's darkest hour. The reports he'd seen painted a dire picture. The armies of the Republic had suffered grave defeats, and the coalition was advancing on all fronts. Led by the great Russian general Alexander Suvorov, coalition forces swept through Italy with terrifying speed, undoing nearly all of Napoleon's conquests. Other coalition armies were pushing into what was once Switzerland, now the French-aligned Helvetic Republic. In Germany, Austrian commander Archduke Charles von Teschen, the talented young brother of the emperor, had beaten the Republicans back over the Rhine River. To the north, a large force of Russian and British troops had landed in North Holland, and were threatening to take Amsterdam and overrun France's Dutch sister republic. It seemed obvious that the next stage of the war would be an invasion of France itself. Bonaparte probably envisioned himself repelling the enemy from the gates of Paris, or something similarly dramatic. But keep in mind the much slower pace of information and transportation in the Napoleonic era. By the time news reached Napoleon in Egypt, it was already months out of date, and by the time Bonaparte arrived back on the continent ready to act, it was months later still. When he set foot on French soil in October of 1799, the entire strategic picture had changed. The Republican armies had pulled off a miracle without him. In the Batavian Republic, General Guillaume Brune had managed to bottle up the British and Russians on the North Holland Peninsula. Unable to expand beyond this narrow strip of land, the coalition had already entered into talks with the French to evacuate their armies from the Netherlands. Before the end of the year, they would be aboard ships bound for home. But the most dramatic reversals had occurred in Switzerland. Coalition armies operating in southern Germany, Switzerland, and northern Italy were all set to converge on the Swiss plateau. With their forces combined, they would have well over 100,000 men poised for a push into France itself the following spring. Standing in the way of this convergence was the army of Helvetia, commanded by General André Massena. 
you probably remember Massena as one of Napoleon's divisional commanders from the first Italian campaign. That was valuable experience, because the situation he now faced in Switzerland was very similar to many of those famous engagements he'd fought with Napoleon two years earlier. If the coalition were able to combine their forces, their numbers would be overwhelming. Massena's only chance was to outmarch and outthink the enemy, to create conditions in which he and his small army could fight each enemy column separately. It was the strategy of the central position, one of Napoleon's signature plans. Massena and his men pulled it off, in a way that would have made Napoleon proud, or perhaps more likely, jealous. Through tremendous cunning and superhuman effort, they managed to keep the enemy columns separated. In late September, only two weeks after Bonaparte's return, the army of Helvetia completely shattered a combined Austro-Russian force at the Second Battle of Zurich, effectively ending the coalition advance through Switzerland. The timing of the battle was very unfortunate for General Suvorov and his army who were already crossing the Alpine passes from Italy into southern Switzerland, racing to link up with their comrades. Massena turned the army of Helvetia south to pounce on Suvorov in the narrow mountain roads, before he had time to concentrate his army and prepare for the Republican onslaught. For the first time since the beginning of the war, a French general had the drop on the great Suvorov, who seemed poised to suffer his first ever defeat. A lesser general in these circumstances almost certainly would have seen much of his army annihilated, cornered in some alpine valley, or ambushed in a vulnerable mountain pass. But against all odds, Suvorov managed to evade Messena, falling back into Italy without fighting a single major engagement against the French. Retreat was better than defeat, but it still came at a terrible cost to his army. Thousands of Russian soldiers died of exposure, exhaustion, and hunger, or became separated from their units and were killed or captured by the French. The force that emerged from the Alps was so depleted that it almost looked like they had lost a battle to Messena. Suvorov and his army had survived to fight another day, but the incredible momentum they'd built in the first phase of the war was broken. You might compare Suvorov's retreat from Switzerland to the British evacuation from Dunkirk in 1940. It was unquestionably a setback and a humiliation, but it's often remembered almost like a victory, because things could easily have turned out so much worse. The march back to Italy is rightly seen as a testament to Suvorov's genius, and to the toughness and steadfastness of the Russian soldier. Not long after the retreat, Suvorov was ordered back to St. Petersburg. Ostensibly, this was to take a promotion to Generalissimo, or Supreme Commander of all the Tsar's armies. But the truth was, he was nearly 69 years old, and the mental and physical stress of the retreat had taken a toll on his already fragile health. Everyone could see the great general was nearing the end of his life, but that didn't stop him from writing an exhaustive, multi-volume book about the campaign. Once that work was done, Suvorov died in May of 1800, only a few months after his return from Italy, still undefeated. He had written of his desire to face Napoleon on the battlefield. It would have been quite a showdown, the best of the older generation versus the best of the new generation, two of the greatest commanders of all time. But it wasn't meant to be. Since Suvorov, no Russian or later Soviet officer has ever risen to the rank of Generalissimo. This is mostly an accident of history, but I think it's fitting for a man you might easily argue has no equal in Russian military history. The upshot for our story is that France no longer had any dire need of a military savior. This left Napoleon in an awkward position. 
he had abandoned his post in Egypt without orders, and thus, technically speaking, was absent without leave. A rival general began openly referring to him as the deserter. He assumed France would be facing imminent foreign invasion by superior enemy forces, too desperate to ask many questions about the sudden appearance of one of the country's best generals. But with the tide of war turning in France's favor, Napoleon wasn't the essential figure he'd assumed he would be. The war ministry would have been well within its rights to subject Bonaparte to a court-martial and have him shot. Some of his enemies in the military and the government wanted to take this course of action, or at least hold it over Napoleon's head to tarnish his reputation and cause him some trouble. But once again, Napoleon's popularity with the soldiers and the common people shielded him from any meddling from Paris. News of the young general's return provoked a kind of public euphoria which had become quite rare in this jaded, exhausted country. Spontaneous public celebrations erupted all over France, from big cities to rural villages. Word reached Paris in the evening, and the theaters and music halls of the capital stopped their performances so the crowds could sing patriotic anthems. An observer described the scene at the famous Comédie Française, quote, it was as though an electric shock passed through the room. No one paid any attention to the show. People went from box to box, came out, entered, ran, unable to remain in one place. On every face, in every conversation, was written the hope of salvation and the presentiment of happiness. End quote. As Bonaparte traveled north from the Mediterranean coast to the capital, the journey took on the character of a royal procession, with the residents of every town turning out to show turning out to shower him with affection and to give some token of their esteem. A young soldier remembered Napoleon's entrance into the city of Lyon. Quote, All the houses were lit up and decked out with flags. Guns were shot into the air. Crowds filled the streets to the point of preventing the carriage from advancing. People were dancing in the public squares, and the air echoed with the cry of Long live Bonaparte, who has come to save the fatherland. End quote. This is not the reception you might expect for a general who was absent without leave after a failed campaign, but his difficulties in Egypt do not appear to have tarnished his public reputation. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Bonaparte was very fortunate to have had almost complete control over the news that went home from the Middle East. He and his propagandists had painted the expedition as an exotic adventure rather than a costly failure. They downplayed his shortcomings and the misery and brutality of the French occupation, and played up the successes and more romantic aspects of the campaign. The public was already disposed to like Bonaparte, and had no alternative source of information on these faraway events, so they believed it. While the remains of the Army of the Orient staggered towards near-certain defeat, Napoleon returned home a conquering hero. The military situation had changed, and France no longer really needed a savior. Indeed, you could make the argument that the savior had already arrived, and his name was André Massena. But the public doesn't have a keen eye for strategy. From our lofty view of events, it's clear that recent Republican victories had removed any immediate danger of invasion, and probably shifted the momentum of the war towards France. But that wasn't obvious to the average person on the ground. They knew there were enemy armies near the borders, and the disasters of the beginning of the war were still fresh in everyone's minds. Those early defeats had shaken public confidence in the government, which hadn't been strong to begin with. 
it would take more than a few victories to repair the damage. Those at the top could easily see Bonaparte was no savior, but it was easy for the public to believe. And of course, Napoleon's formidable public relations machine was there to stoke these beliefs. Even before his arrival, he had sympathetic writers churning out propaganda, calling for General Bonaparte to return to the continent and save the Republic. Just like during the First Italian Campaign, Bonaparte was simply too popular for the government to discipline or restrain. If Napoleon's rivals came after him for deserting his post, there was no question that he would win the fight in the court of public opinion, whatever the army or the government might have chosen to do with him. It was a fight none of his enemies could afford. And so, Napoleon's triumphal tour to Paris continued unmolested. Once again, he'd flouted the rules and gotten away with it. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. It almost goes without saying by now, but back in the capital, the government was riven by factionalism, and the politicians were busy forming plots. The conspiracy of the moment would ultimately culminate in Napoleon's rise to power only a few months later, but it was a strange, circuitous chain of events that led to that outcome, which none of the plotters would have predicted. In episode 49, we met a new clique on the political scene, headed up by an old, familiar face, Emmanuel Siez, the former Catholic clergyman and liberal political thinker, who had played a key role in the early stages of the revolution, but quickly fallen by the wayside as events turned radical and savvier political operators came to the fore. Now, under the Directory, he had re-emerged as the de facto leader of a group of centrist politicians and intellectuals. Siez and his allies were opposed to the status quo, which they saw as ineffective and unconstitutional, but also to the left-wing opposition, which they saw as dangerously radical. They wanted a semi-democratic, bureaucratic regime, not unlike the Directory, but one which would be equipped to govern well, and more importantly, operate legally within the Constitution, rather than maintaining its power through coups, corruption, and the disenfranchisement of its opponents. Siez had developed a plan of constitutional reform which he believed could achieve this. This plan was ludicrously convoluted. Remember, Siez was an idealist, an intellectual first and a politician second. He believed any political problem could be solved with the right ideas. And so, he labored over his proposed constitutional reforms like a watchmaker finally tuning a complex mechanism, identifying the failures of previous revolutionary governments and incorporating elements to avoid them. I'll spare you all the minute details, but in general terms, the main governing principle of Siez's reformed constitution would be the same as the old, indirect democracy. The people would elect local assemblies, and these assemblies would choose the higher levels of government from among themselves, without any further direct input from the voters. C.S. believed this would preserve the ideal of democracy, while also preserving stability and preventing demagoguery and mob rule. Executive power would be wielded by a committee, 
this time composed of three consuls rather than five directors. Presiding over everything would be an office known as the Grand Elector, who would serve as a ceremonial head of state and nominate the consuls, subject to approval by the legislature. On paper, the Grand Elector was a relatively weak office, not unlike the elected presidents in many modern parliamentary systems. But Siez envisioned himself in this position, and believed he could use it to amass considerable power behind the scenes, and act as a source of stability and a kind of guiding hand for the entire government. One of Siez's most visible allies was Napoleon's younger brother, Lucien Bonaparte. Lucien had been elected to the Council of 500, the lower house of the legislature, and risen to become its president, equivalent to Speaker of the House and the American system. He was only 24 years old. Lucien's left-wing radicalism was now a thing of the past. He was reborn as a pragmatic, if still combative, centrist. But he hadn't lost his flair for impassioned oratory. He used his position as president of the lower house to blast the government at every opportunity. In Lucien's words, the directory, quote, didn't govern so much as vegetate, end quote. By the time his older brother returned from Egypt, Lucian was one of the loudest and most visible critics of the directory. The oldest Bonaparte brother, Joseph, had been enlisted in Siez's cause as well. He too had been elected to the legislature, but his political profile was nearly the opposite of the flamboyant, confrontational Lucian. Joseph preferred to work behind the scenes, and cultivated relationships with people from all over the political spectrum. In an early episode, I compared Carlo Bonaparte, Napoleon's father, to a modern big city mayor, always glad-handing, always keen to make friends. Joseph had definitely inherited this trait from his father. His home outside Paris became a minor hub in the social and intellectual life of the capital. From closet royalists to radical left-wing Democrats, everyone who was anyone in the world of politics or letters eventually got an invitation to a party or salon at Joseph's home. Everyone seemed to like him. Between Lucien's hard-charging oratory and Joseph's soft touch, the Bonaparte brothers were important figures in the Siaz clique, and their faction was winning over converts every day. The wily diplomat, Charles-Maurice de Talleyrand, who had helped launch the Egypt expedition, came over to Siaz's side, as did the ruthless, powerful minister of police, Joseph Fouché. The directory had never been popular and the French defeats at the beginning of the war had opened many minds to the idea of a new government. As we discussed last time, some of this energy was captured by the left-wing opposition, but many still associated them with the Jacobins and the Terror, and could not bring themselves to support the left. C.S. and his allies were perfectly positioned to capitalize on the political moment. There was one big problem. Even with momentum on their side, Amending the directory constitution was a long, arduous process. Even if everything went smoothly, it would be nearly a decade before the Siez faction could see their plans bear fruit. They were not prepared to wait that long. Perhaps they didn't think the country could afford nine more years of the directory. Perhaps they were simply eager to take power. Whatever the case, Siez and his friends began plotting to circumvent the constitution with yet another coup d'etat the very tactic they were constantly criticizing the directory for using. The plan was to get a majority of the directors to resign en masse, thus effectively dissolving the government, 
then bring in soldiers to arrest their opponents in the legislature and the two left-wing directors. C.S. himself was a director, and obviously he was on board. He brought one of his allies on the committee into the conspiracy, and they believed a third could be cajoled into participating, Paul Barra, Napoleon's old patron-slash-rival who had introduced him to Josephine. Barra was fundamentally pliant, corrupt, self-interested, and amoral. The plotters knew he was the type of man who would agree to anything to save his own skin. There was also another difficulty. The CS faction included plenty of politicians, writers, and philosophers, but no soldiers. CS began looking for what he called a sword. The fact that C.S. compared this person to an inanimate object shows you exactly how limited a role he was hoping they would play in the conspiracy. The sword would be an ideologically reliable general, who was willing to bring his troops into the capital, arrest members of the opposition, and defend the new government from any challenges by the Parisian mob or loyalist army units, then step aside and let the civilians govern. Just like a sword, this person would be wielded by the conspirators against their enemies, then safely sheathed. The most logical candidate was Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte. Bernadotte was commander of the Army of the Interior, a position Napoleon had held briefly as a reward for his services on 13 Vendémiaire. It was the most politically powerful assignment in the army. The commander of the Army of the Interior was responsible for internal security, and the only general who could legally station his troops inside Paris. We met Bernadotte in episode 34, during his brief stint with the Army of Italy. He was a good general, but an egotistical, jealous man, who constantly felt slighted and undervalued by his superiors. Like Napoleon, he harbored political ambitions, and had finally worked his way into a position where he might be a political player. Unfortunately for Siez, Bernadotte's sympathies lay with the left. Not only was there no chance of him acting as the sword of the coup, there was a real danger that he might call out his troops against the plotters once the action began. But by chance, Bernadotte did have a personal connection to the Siez clique. He had just married Desiree Clary, the sister of Joseph Bonaparte's wife, Julie. You might remember that Napoleon had been infatuated with Desiree years earlier. Now she was married to one of his rivals, a man who felt Napoleon had disrespected him and stolen his glory. I don't know what to tell you. If a writer put this in a novel or a screenplay, people would probably call him a hack. But that's how it happened. Joseph and Bernadotte were now brothers-in-law, and the elder Bonaparte was able to use this connection to secure a promise from Bernadotte. He would not lend his troops to the coup, but he would not intervene to protect the government if another general did. The conspirators combed through the officer corps, and by the summer of 1799, C.S. believed he had finally found his sword, 30-year-old General Barthélemy Joubert. Joubert was actually one of Napoleon's protégés. He had served at Toulon, then risen to the rank of divisional commander in the Army of Italy. He had a glowing record, and had been marked out for great things since the very beginning of his career. Best of all, he had no personal political ambitions and would be quite content to step aside once he played his role in the coup. The only problem was, for all his potential, Joubert had yet to achieve the type of big, independent command that would secure his reputation as one of France's top generals. Joubert accepted the overtures from Siez, but told him he didn't have the stature to act as the sword. Not yet. 
he asked them to use their influence to secure him command of the Army of Italy, which was then struggling to contain the Austro-Russian invasion of northern Italy. One big victory against Suvorov, and Joubert's reputation would be made. Siez agreed, and the young general set out for Italy. Joubert's big chance came on August 15th, when his army squared off against a larger coalition force, just outside the town of Novi, near Genoa. In the early phases of the battle, Joubert rushed forward to personally lead a counterattack against the Austrians, and was almost immediately shot and killed. The Republicans lost the battle, and Siez lost his sword. The plotters now entered crisis mode. They had been operating under the assumption the coup would take place within a few months just as soon as Joubert could secure his victory and come back to Paris with troops. Wheels were already in motion. Siez and his friends had taken a lot of people into their confidence to pave the way for a smooth transfer of power. The longer they waited, the greater the chance they would be discovered, or someone might get cold feet. Coups live or die on perception. Every player on the political scene seeks to align themselves with the winning side. A coup that seems inevitable will find people flocking to join, to get in good with the new regime. But a coup that seems like a long shot will find people rushing the other direction, to prove their loyalty to the old government. Any loss of momentum might lead to a fatal shift in perceptions. Siez and his friends had to find a new sword, immediately. The plotters had already considered Napoleon for this role, but had quickly dismissed the possibility. General Bonaparte was too popular, too ambitious, and too headstrong. They all knew that Napoleon was not a team player, to use a modern phrase. He was ruthlessly ambitious, and his first impulse was always to take complete control over any situation. If Napoleon was included in their plans, he would surely want a share of political power for himself. It would immediately become Napoleon's coup rather than a shared enterprise led by Siez. Anyone who knew anything about Napoleon could tell that he was not the type to be used as an instrument by others, then placed back on the shelf. He was far from the ideal candidate to be sword of the coup, but with Joubert dead and the plotters scrambling to find a willing general, they were forced to give him a second look. Some of the loudest voices speaking against Napoleon's inclusion were Joseph and Lucien Bonaparte. They knew their brother. They knew he was driven by ambition and almost pathologically incapable of playing second fiddle to anyone. They also knew how far his politics had shifted since their Jacobin days, when the three brothers were known as the Corsican Gracchi. In a recent letter to Joseph, Napoleon confided, quote, Our dreams of a republic were the illusions of youth. End quote. Almost everyone in France had shifted further to the right since the old days but the members of the Siez clique still believed democracy could work, albeit in a limited, managed form. Napoleon seems to have lost any remaining shred of faith in the more radical ideas of the revolution. It would be a big risk for the plotters to include an overbearing, ambitious general with authoritarian tendencies, who was more popular than the whole group combined. Lucien warned his compatriots, quote, He is dangerous, end quote. You'd think these types of warnings from Napoleon's own flesh and blood would have given Siez and the rest of the plotters pause, but they felt they had no other choice. Joseph was ordered to approach his brother about acting as the sword of the coup. Despite their misgivings, Joseph and Lucien swallowed their pride and towed the line. 
Just as they had predicted, their brother immediately recognized that he held all the cards, and began negotiating for concessions. Siez tried to hold the line, but Napoleon was easily able to call his bluffs. He knew how desperate the plotters were to secure their sword. Using his participation as leverage, Napoleon was able to completely change Siez's reform agenda. He immediately recognized what Siez was trying to do with the position of Grand Elector, set himself up as puppet master behind the rest of the government. Napoleon demanded the office be eliminated. He also secured for himself the position of First Consul, one-third of the triumvirate that would serve as France's new executive branch after the coup. The other two consuls would be firm allies of Siez, but he himself would have no formal role in the new government. Joseph and Lucien Bonaparte were right. Bringing their brother into the conspiracy had rapidly transformed the coup into Napoleon's affair, with those who had spent months actually planning and organizing the enterprise relegated to supporting roles. But what could they do? The plot needed military muscle to succeed, and Bonaparte was the only general who could plausibly provide it. And you can't exactly fire someone from a seditious conspiracy, especially not someone as popular and powerful as Napoleon. Siez and the other plotters had little choice but to acquiesce to their new partner's demands. The cost was humiliating, but Siez finally had his sword, which meant the conspirators could set a date for the coup. The action would begin in the wee hours of November 9th, 1799 or the 18th of the month of Brumaire, year 8, on the Republican calendar. Before dawn, printed notices appeared on walls and lampposts all over Paris, warning the public that a coup was underway. Not by Siez and his centrists, but by the left. These notices urged the citizens of the capital to stay calm, and informed them that loyal troops and members of the government were acting swiftly to safeguard the Constitution. This lie would be the pretext for the real coup, carried out by Napoleon and Siez. That same night, Bonaparte had broadsheets of his own plastered all over the city, hailing the return of France's conquering hero, calling him the only man capable of delivering peace. Seeing these messages side by side, the government under threat and Napoleon as the savior of France, it was clear what conclusions Bonaparte wanted the public to draw. Ex-Foreign Minister Talleyrand, one of the ringleaders of the coup, next went to the home of Director Paul Barra to obtain his resignation. Remember, Barra was not party to the conspiracy, but the plan called for three resignations from the directors. According to some sources, Talleyrand found Barra in his morning bath, which must have given the minister a slight upper hand in this all-important negotiation. Talleyrand promised Barra a privileged position in the new government if he went along, and after a brief back and forth, Barra accepted and signed a letter of resignation. Talleyrand and the conspirators had no intention of honoring these promises, but had to tread carefully. For all his faults and weaknesses, Paul Barra had a lot of connections, and knew where a lot of bodies were buried. With the resignation letters from three of the five directors now in hand, the plotters had completely neutralized the executive branch of government. Next, they called an emergency session of the Senate, the upper house of the legislature. Conveniently, most of the left-wing senators failed to receive their invitations to this meeting. 
Fortunately for the plotters, there were enough centrists in the body to form a quorum without the left. The Senate voted to give General Napoleon Bonaparte command of 7,000 troops around the capital, and formally ordered him to defend the Republic from this supposed left-wing coup. They also voted to temporarily move the seat of government from the Tuileries Palace in the heart of Paris to the Château de Saint-Cloud, a former aristocratic palace outside the city, for reasons of safety and defensibility. This was a clever move by the plotters. The legislators would be on unfamiliar ground, where it would be easy to control them and harder for them to communicate with the outside world, far from potential outside intervention. Now invested with the legal authority to lead troops in Paris, Napoleon took command of a large force of soldiers stationed around the Tuileries Palace and delivered a speech. Ostensibly, he was talking to his men on the occasion of his new command, but his words were clearly intended for public consumption. It was mostly boilerplate rhetoric, the standard critique of the status quo people had been hearing from the CS clique for months now, and the need to defend the Republic from this supposed threat. But the speech heated up when Paul Barra's secretary had the misfortune to enter the scene. Napoleon pointed him out to the crowd and began berating the poor man, turning him into a symbol for all the government's failings. Quote, What have you done with the France I left you so brilliant? I left you peace. I find war. I left you conquests. I find the enemy at our borders. I left you the millions of Italy, and I find misery and extortionate taxes. Where are the brave hundred thousand soldiers I left, covered with laurels, my companions in glory? End quote. As the sun set on the 18th of Brumaire, the coup was only half finished. The directory was neutralized, and the Senate had proved compliant. But the lower house of the legislature, the Council of 500, remained outside of the control of the plotters. They still had not forced through their desired constitutional changes, or installed their new provisional government. But everything was going according to plan. The plotters had always envisioned their seizure of power taking place over two days. This is perhaps understandable given the intricacies of their plan and the slow pace of travel and communication, but it was a risk. The longer the coup took to complete, the more opportunities the opposition would have to regroup and react. This danger was supposed to be mitigated over the night of the 18th through 19th, when Minister of Police Joseph Fouché, a key member of the conspiracy, planned to seal the gates of the city and arrest 40 prominent left-wing leaders. But for some reason, Napoleon himself countermanded these orders, a decision he would probably regret the next day. On the 19th of Brumaire, the legislature met at its new emergency home at the Chateau de Saint-Cloud. The day's session was not called to order until afternoon, because, for some reason, nobody had thought to prepare the rooms in advance, so chairs, desks, and podiums had to be found and set up. The atmosphere at Saint-Cloud was explosive. There were soldiers everywhere. Hardly anyone knew what was going on, although many had begun to suspect the official story was not the truth. These men were not accustomed to being kept in the dark, and they demanded answers. Finally, just after noon, the chambers were ready. Lucien Bonaparte, president of the Council of 500, called the lower house to order and informed them that a majority of the directors had resigned. The government was effectively dissolved. It would be up to the legislature to decide what happened next. 
According to the conspirators' plans, their men in the legislature were supposed to force motions through both houses, granting Napoleon emergency executive powers to counter the left-wing coup and form a new government. But instead, the legislature exploded with anger and alarm. Deputy after deputy took the floor for a series of furious, incoherent speeches. There was a lot of shouting and pounding of fists, but the only course of action they could decide on was having each member swear an oath of allegiance to the Constitution. Napoleon waited outside the building with his men. As you might expect, he was beside himself with anxiety. The politicians were supposed to have this in hand. Someone was supposed to emerge from Saint-Cloud at any moment to inform him of his new emergency powers. But the minutes ticked by, and turned into hours, as the angry, panicked deputies inside the palace talked themselves blue in the face. By around three in the afternoon, Napoleon was tired of waiting. Something was clearly wrong. The plan was stalled, and when it comes to coups, delay often means disaster. He decided to take matters into his own hands. Bonaparte picked out a squad of grenadiers and marched into the palace. He went first to the Senate, which had voted him into command the previous day, and was the friendlier of the two houses to the C.S. clique. But Napoleon and his grenadiers got a frosty reception. The left-wing senators who had been absent on the 18th were now seated, and even many of the centrist members, who were sympathetic to the plot, objected to this blatant use of force against elected representatives. Napoleon stumbled through what was, by all accounts, a very bad speech, demanding the senators grant him emergency powers before it was too late. But by now, hardly anyone was buying this story about a left-wing coup. One of the senators yelled back, quote, What of the Constitution? End quote. Napoleon answered him, quote, The Constitution? You yourselves have annihilated it. End quote. He then rattled off the various coups and nullified elections of the previous four years. He wasn't wrong, but the senators were not convinced. Bonaparte began to alternate between expounding on the danger of the left and threatening the senators with violence of his own. Quote, Don't forget that I walk with the god of war and the god of victory. Soldiers, if any of these orators dare to declare your general an outlaw, may a lightning bolt strike them down. End quote. It was not a good rhetorical strategy. Napoleon was flailing. Unable to make an impression on the Senate, he and his grenadiers stormed out of the chamber to try their luck with the lower house. Meanwhile, while Napoleon was blustering at the senators, his brother Lucian had finally managed to regain control over the Council of 500 and formally introduced the motion to grant Napoleon emergency powers. Predictably, this set off yet another spasm of screaming indignation from the deputies, who now had further proof of their suspicions that this supposed left-wing coup was merely a cover for something else. It was at this highly charged moment that Napoleon and his men entered the chamber. They were greeted with angry shouts and jeers. Pandemonium broke loose as left-wing deputies rose from their seats to confront the soldiers. You have to admire their courage but the scene was imbued with a touch of farce by the uniforms of the deputies, bright red Roman-style togas with plumed hats. Apparently, these were quite awkward to move in, so you have to imagine this surge of deputies stumbling and tripping over one another as they swarmed towards Napoleon and the grenadiers, shouting, Tyrant! and Dictator! 
One deputy physically grabbed Bonaparte, pulled him close, and shouted into his face, quote, Was it for this that you won your victories? End quote. Seeing their general threatened, the grenadiers intervened, and something of a brawl ensued. Bonapartists would later claim that several of the deputies drew daggers at this point, but many historians have doubted this assertion. Napoleon took a blow to the face, hard enough to draw blood, and knock him down. Lucian feared the worst and cried out to the grenadiers, quote, Defend your leader! End quote. Napoleon was scooped up off the ground, and the soldiers beat a hasty retreat out of the chamber. Flush with victory, the left-wing deputies seized the momentum, introducing a motion to declare Napoleon Bonaparte an outlaw. These men were all veterans of the revolution, and knew this resolution could only lead one place, to the guillotine. Lucian was able to defeat the motion, but the atmosphere inside the chamber was becoming so violent and angry that he felt compelled to slip out of the palace and join Napoleon outside with the troops. Lucian found his brother slumped silently on a horse, his troops milling about anxiously, waiting for orders. Perhaps Napoleon was still stunned from that blow to the face, or perhaps he was at a loss for once, grappling with his utter failure to bring the legislature to heel. This was the key moment. As I've said, coups succeed or fail largely on momentum and the perception of inevitability. The plotters were now in danger of losing both. It was the late afternoon, which, in Paris in November, means dusk was fast approaching. If the coup dragged on to a third day, it would have little hope of success. C.S. had no idea what to do. He was a thinker, not a man of action. The usually dynamic Napoleon was silent, seemingly defeated. If the coup was to be saved, someone would have to take matters into hand. It was Lucien Bonaparte who rose to the occasion. He was famous for his impassioned oratory and flair for the dramatic. He would now call upon all his powers to save himself, his brothers, their friends, and the cause. Lucian borrowed a horse from a cavalryman, mounted, rode up alongside his brother, and prepared to make the speech of his life. He addressed the assembled troops and onlookers, quote, Soldiers, citizens, at this moment, the majority of the Council of Five Hundred is held in terror by a few representatives who are armed with knives, threatening their colleagues, and proposing the most awful deliberations. I declare to you that these audacious brigands, who are doubtlessly inspired by the deadly genius of the English government, have risen in rebellion against the legislature, demanding that General Bonaparte be outlawed. I declare to you that this small number of enraged people have outlawed themselves by their attacks upon the liberty of the legislature, in the name of all those who have been victims and playthings of these miserable children of the terror, I entrust you soldiers with the mission of rescuing your representatives, so that, protected from daggers by bayonets, we might deliberate on the fate of the Republic. General, and you soldiers, and you citizens, you will acknowledge only those who come to join with their president as deputies of France. As for the rest, who remain in the chamber to vote for outlaws, let force expel them. They are no longer representatives of the people, but representatives of the dagger. Long live the Republic. End quote. It was all lies, but Lucian's speech was received with thunderous applause and cries of Long live the Republic and Long live Bonaparte. But there was no action. People seemed unsure what to do next. 
The speech does seem to have finally roused Napoleon, who added, quote, If anyone resists, kill, kill, kill. Yes, follow me, I am the god of battles. End quote. This was absolutely the wrong tone. Lucian had just won these men over to the idea that they had to act as free citizens to defend liberty from lawless violence. Napoleon's message of, I am your god, kill my enemies, sounded more like the command of some ancient tyrant. Lucian leaned over to his brother and whispered, quote, Hold your tongue for God's sake, you are not talking to your Mamluks, end quote. Searching for some gesture to undo the damage, Lucian grabbed his brother's sword and brandished it before the crowd, crying out, quote, I swear that I will stab my own brother in the heart if he ever violates the liberty of Frenchmen, end quote. He would certainly go on to eat those words. This bit of drama seems to have finally galvanized the troops into action. Napoleon's old friend, General Joachim Murat, rallied a large force to re-enter the palace and purge the legislature. Once again, chaos reigned inside Saint-Cloud, as Murat's men went room to room, hunting for opposition deputies, who struggled to escape in their ludicrous Roman togas. Some of them managed to slip out the back, or even jumped out windows to avoid the troops, and hid out in the grounds of the palace. Those who weren't so lucky were detained. With the legislature suitably purged and intimidated, Lucian returned and was able to easily pass all the necessary motions to legalize the coup and install a new provisional government, with Napoleon Bonaparte as first consul. The second day of the coup had been a farce from beginning to end. As the sword of the coup, Napoleon had proved to be almost more of a liability than an asset. But it didn't matter. When the sun rose on November 11th, 1799, France had a new government, with Napoleon Bonaparte at its head. We've now passed a significant milestone in our story. With the exception of one brief interlude, Napoleon will be the leader of France for the rest of the podcast, until we reach our epilogue. And so, I'd like to spend the next few episodes examining the ramifications of the coup of 18 Brumaire, and taking stock of the country Bonaparte now ruled. Until next time, thanks for listening. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.